When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with poet Jenny Chi, author of the poetry collection Focal Point. I think I just needed to live my life more before I got to the final form, and Mm. sometimes that's just how it goes. We'll be back with Jenny Chi after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. 
Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Jenny Chi, author of the poetry collection Focal Point, winner of the 2020 Steel Toe Books Poetry Prize, and a finalist for the Patterson Poetry Prize. Her essays and poems have been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. Chi also received her PhD in biomedical science from University of California at San Francisco. Her collection Focal Point was written largely while she was a young Ph.D. student conducting cancer research after her beloved mother's death from cancer. The collection turns to all the rituals of all the faiths invoking Western and Eastern mythology and history, metaphors from cell biology, and even Jimi Hendrix, as she searches for a container to hold grief. Focal Point offers an interrogation of how to be alive in the world, always loving something that has been or is in the process of being lost. This episode was recorded live on stage in May 2023 in Crested Butte, Colorado at the Mountain Words Festival, a multi-day literary celebration featuring readings, workshops, kids' events, parties, panel discussions, theater, film, and more. It takes place every May over Memorial Day, You can learn more at mtnwords.org. The interview begins with me introducing myself on stage. Thank you so much for being here. Just a little bit about my podcast. Uh, I interview an author a week. I read a book a week. It's the 10th anniversary next week, so I have about 450 interviews in the archive. And there's a format to it, so we have a discussion for most of it, and then I ask every single author the same five questions at the end. So we'll do that at the end, and then we can open up in case you have questions for Jenny as well. So um, thank you for having us. And Jenny, do you want to just say a few words about you? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, and and thanks for having this conversation. Um, So my name is Jenny Chi. Uh, I am one of the writers in residence here, and it's been really lovely. Yeah, and I'm the author of Focal Point, and you will be talking about that. That's all. I'd like to begin with um, Focal Point, which has a beautiful cover, which I want to ask you about in a a few minutes. But basically, I would say my read of this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is you start like almost at the molecular and go out 
to the greater world. You kind of begin with cells and you go out to the sky. So it has five parts. It has one poem in the beginning and then it's separated into five parts. And we're kind of following a little bit of your emotional journey through the death of your mother. And you are really starting minuscule and then looking out to the universal. Does that ring true? Did I read the book you wrote? Yeah, I, I appreciate your read of that. Um, yes, I guess I hadn't even thought of it as like starting with the molecular, um, but definitely starting with the personal and then um, moving on to more universal, more communal things, um, kind of as a way of thinking about grief and the way grief worked for me. You are a cancer cellular biologist and you have spent your professional career in the sciences and you also have this part of you that is a humanities person that's writing poetry. And I'm, I'm curious about paying attention because poetry is so much about paying attention to the world around you. That, that the cellular level of things that you study in science and the amount of attention you pay to the world you live in, in front of your eyes, that relationship. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think those are very closely tied together. Um, I feel like a, a lot of people do find it curious um, that I'm in the sciences and the arts and like uh, I've been asked a few times what is the relationship between those. And I honestly think research and poetry are so similar at the core, and it's really a false dichotomy that they should be separated. Um, both of these things are about, ultimately, curiosity. Um, like, how does the universe work? How do emotions work? Like, what is, what is happening underneath surface levels? And so I think, my scientific training has also helped hone my ability to pay attention to things. And I think, yeah, that, that is what all of this is about, is ultimately the spirit of curiosity and inquiry. Do you feel like since, I'm assuming that you look through a microscope a lot at things. I did. <laughs> that when you that there's almost something preternatural to you about looking at your emotional life that way, or maybe even looking at a tree that way? A little bit. I think maybe I'm just used to staring really hard at things, either literally or metaphorically. Um, yeah, I mean, I think any of my fellow residents would tell you I'm like prone to just like stop in the middle of a walk and be like, hey, did you see that mountain bluebird? It's really beautiful. So I think, I don't know, I am used to just like trying really hard to like pay attention to things or, or not even trying, just like doing it. Before you get into the five parts, you start with a poem in this book that's kind of separate and apart from everything, and it's called Point at Which Parallel Waves Converge and From Which Diverge, which you're, you're describing like the optical focal point. And it's kind of outside of the rest of the collection, and you're also talking about something kind of laser pointed. So I was curious about your decision to call this focal point mm -hmm. and to start with a poem almost outside of the structure of the rest of the book. 
Mm. Thank you for your careful reading. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I went through a lot of iterations of this book, I'll say, um, or I went through a few iterations, and that poem wasn't always in that position. Um, like at first, when I first wrote it, I had placed it at the end because I, I felt like it was mm, so critical to the collection. Um, and it was very intentional that I made the title of that poem, like the definition of the title, as you noted. Um, I think in the end, I ended up putting it there because I was sort of seeing this manuscript, um, almost like a poetic lab notebook. Like all through, so I wrote this when I was um, in grad school getting my PhD in cancer biology. And all through that time, I was trying so hard to like keep those lives separated. And then when I was putting this together uh, towards the end of that period, um, close to graduation, um, I, started to realize, actually, I haven't kept these lives separated at all. I've written so much about like cells and so many observations in lab ended up trickling in to my poems. And I hadn't quite realized that until I was putting the collection together. And so I ended up thinking of that first poem almost as like an abstract, like if anyone has seen a scientific paper, like you have the abstract and you have like the introduction and like all these sections where you get to the conclusion. And the abstract is the part that, it's like a little summary, it tells you what to expect, like what the whole thing is about. And in a way, that's how I thought of that poem. If someone handed you an abstract of your life, would you want to read it? Hmm, what a good question. Um, I feel like I would compulsively read it. I don't know that I would want to, but I would do it. What would be your answer to this? Absolutely not. No way, I don't want to know. But I was talking to a poet a few weeks ago and her poetry collection is called Door. And it was, all her poems were called Doors. And I asked her, like, if there was an unmarked door that you didn't know where it was going, would you go through it? And I would absolutely go through it. Would you? Hmm. I would vacillate a lot, and I probably would. <laughs> I mean, it might take you to Mars, and you're never coming home, but that's your moment. Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier deeply curious as both a poet and a scientist, I don't think I'd be able to stop myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious about, you know, when you talk about this abstracts and this, how the cellular went into your poetry, you have a line in a poem later on where you're talking about grief. And you say that grief is a wide open field. And this seems in a lot of ways to be juxtaposed with this focal point which is very laser, and you know we live with ambiguity all the time. So I'm I'm curious about this dichotomy, and because this is so much about grief, maybe the difference between the openness of grief and maybe whether it's like the claustrophobia of it or just looking at it in a very small 
part, part of your life or emotion? That's a good observation. I feel like no one ever like, points out that poem. <laughs> um, I think when I was writing this, grief kind of just took over so much of my life that it was both things. It was the focal point of my life, and it was also this endless expanse. And so I would say that is why it's characterized in both ways. It's both um, tunnel vision and also when you look out, can't see a future without it. I think too what was incredibly heartbreaking about this is that you, you write in there um, basically that you are a cancer cell biologist and your mother has cancer and that all these things that you know still can't save her. I actually went into cancer biology because of that experience. My mother actually um, got cancer and died when I was in college. And so it was not quite when I had reached a point of being able to even feel like I could do anything. Um, I had been pre-med all that time, and I took a cancer biology class in, I want to say my junior year of college, and that was sort of the turning point, one of the things that helped me decide to shift over to the research track, because during that time, just learning about the cellular processes that are the underpinnings of cancer, somehow that was comforting. And I don't know exactly why. I think maybe part of it was having that knowledge helped me feel less helpless. And part of it was just that STEM can be very difficult. And so I had to really like focus my attention on learning these facts and learning about processes and almost separating that from the emotions. And that was, that was kind of nice. It was a nice distraction. Tell us a little bit about your mother. Oh, I've written so much about her. Where do I even begin? Um, one of the stories I like to think about, about my mom, is that um, when my parents first immigrated from China, um, we were in Pennsylvania, and my mother had been a teacher in China, and this was after like her childhood and her education getting totally interrupted by the Cultural Revolution. Um, she like finished middle school and high school in like half the time to become a teacher, but then her life kind of had to restart again in America. Um, and in Pennsylvania at some point, she was like so frustrated with not being able to get a job and she really wanted to be an educator or something in education because she just thought that was paramount. And she ended up 
knocking on every door of the University of Pittsburgh, that's where we were, until one of the professors there gave her a chance and like hired her as a lab tech in his diabetes lab. So, yeah. That's amazing. In a poem in, in the beginning when you're talking about like helping her with cancer, it's called The Last Visitation. You have a line in there that says, I was never a better daughter. And you were talking about caring for her and being by her bedside. And I just was curious about that line. I mean, I think part of that came from a certain maybe misplaced guilt that I had. So my mom died when I was 19. And if you have teenagers, you know how they are. And so I had so much guilt after my mom died that what she had experienced of me at the end was like my worst years as a child. Um, And I guess now as um, a slightly older adult, I I have learned to kind of forgive myself a little bit for that because that's just how kids are. (laughs) We have to go through these stages of rebellion and like figuring out who we are and all of that. Um, But yeah, I think it came from kind of a place of of guilt about that Um, and regret that she wasn't able to be around as I like grew into myself more and reached a more natural stage of that role reversal. Did writing this play any part in either alleviating or transforming that guilt? Probably. <laughs> um, I, I definitely processed a lot of my grief through the writing of a lot of these poems. Um, I mean, I think also therapy helped. (laughs) Just like a quick plug for therapy for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, do you find that writing in general or maybe with specific poems that you go in with a greater understanding of yourself or your subject through writing it? Yeah, for for sure. I think a lot of like the best poetry teachers will tell you, like if you know how a poem ends, throw it out. (laughs) I don't know that I always do that, but I do um, really believe that in the process of writing, you learn a lot about yourself. Like so often, I like am writing a poem or writing an essay. I have no idea what I'm writing about or like what I'm writing towards and I don't really know until I get there. And so I think the process of writing can definitely be very healing and enlightening. So that's really interesting when you, you know, to throw away the poem if if you know how it's going to end, how you structured this because it does clearly go from that minuscule to the universal, from the cellular to the sky, from the really interiority of your life to looking at maybe the devastation of other people's lives, whether it's racism or mass shootings and things like that. So 
Does that come later? I mean, when you were putting this collection together, was it not until then that you realized that that was the arc? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that wasn't quite the arc in the first couple versions of this even. Um, I think part of the reason that became the arc um, is that I started putting this book together um, in 2016-ish, and as we all know, a lot of things in the world changed. A lot of things in our country changed um, from then until now. And I think I had also sort of reached a point where a, my brain had become fully developed, and I was able to see things outside of myself a little bit more. And I'd also reached a point in my grief where it didn't feel so all-consuming. And so all of those things happening around the same time um, kind of allowed me to realize, oh, like I have been so focused on this personal grief and now it feels like the world is imploding, but I'm also realizing that it doesn't mean I don't have space to hold these other communal griefs. Like if anything, I think grief can open us so that we are able to hold other people's griefs too. Mm. So I wonder if there's any relationship to that, to what you just said, to um, you have a poem called Letters to My Mother, and you say, for 100 days after she died, I wrote her a letter each day. And at the very end of that poem, you say, I never believed in anything, now I believe in everything. Mm. It isn't the final line, but it's something there that really struck me, um, and what how grief might make you change that perspective. Hmm. Yeah. When I wrote that, I was also thinking about how grief changed my mother. Because um, I think we have always been like a, a family that's kind of grounded in facts. Mm. I'm thinking about this as I'm saying it, and it doesn't feel that true anymore. <laughs> but, um, but like, like my father definitely was someone who thought about science a lot and um, was very uh, much a proponent of like be logical. And so I kind of um, took that on a little bit. And something I observed when my mother lost her parents. Um, I think I was eight-ish, was something similar, where like she started talking about uh, like superstitions and like talking about her parents, maybe like visiting her deceased parents, visiting her in her dreams. And as a kid, like mired in this idea that like I need to be like logical and like whatever, um, I didn't get it. And then after she died, I got it. Because I started thinking of the same things. 
And there was a time when, and you wouldn't think that, because I'm supposed to be a scientist, but science doesn't know everything. It's, it's fine. Like, have your superstitions. Um, there was a time when I was visiting my father's house in Las Vegas, and just like, it had been like years after my mom passed, and I randomly smelled gardenias. She used to leave like little gardenia blossoms and like little, like these tiny bowls of water just in my room. Um, and I was like, there hasn't been a gardenia in this room in like over a decade. And I was like, like, are you here? Yeah, but there was. That smell was there. Um, I'm wondering if you can read a poem. I picked one out. Sure. Um, if you could read Radiation, it's on page 31. Okay. Radiation. You're very bright, said the doctor, when I asked about the implications of my mother's treatment plan. A minimum of five weeks of high-intensity beams aimed at the renegade cells invading her head, her chest. A precaution against feared metastatic growth of cells missed by the lobectomy and surgical resection. She might lose her memory, her voice, her strength. Worth it to combat a less desired end. My mother smiled, nodded, understanding only his last words of praise. Your daughter is very bright. What use is brilliance if I can't direct those beams at renegade cells, particles, eroding memories of her keys on the counter, lullabies she once sang, our early morning strolls by the pond where a crane once walked into its reflection. Did the crane image, like, had you seen that? I had, except now that I know more about birds, I realize it was a heron. So I'm sorry, <laughs> bird people. <laughs> I didn't know the difference back then. <laughs> we'll give you the artistic license. Um, so you have a, basically a moral question in there. Like, is it, is it worth to keep her alive if she doesn't have her memory? And then you go through, at least that's how I read it. Um, you, and you go through, like, what use is it if she can't remember all these things? So it's a lot to grapple with because we want to keep the people we love alive. We have, you know, mortality is very hard for us humans. And I'm curious about this thought for you. I don't even know that I had allowed myself to think of it quite that way as, like, mm. so my mother um, was sick for a long time, like the entire duration of college, basically. And, and there, yeah, there were a lot of changes to her personality. I don't, mm, I don't know that I ever necessarily thought about it as like, is it worth her being alive? But definitely like towards the very end, um, and I've written like a lot about end of life at this point, but um, at the very end of her life, like she was in the ICU, in pain, like, and her life technically was being prolonged by um, all these measures. 
that were probably quite painful and quite invasive. And I think this is a thing I think about a lot, is what does it mean to be alive and what makes a life worth living? Um, so I, I, do, I do think about that. And I'm not sure I was quite thinking about that in such clear terms in this poem. But, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer. I think that's probably different for everybody. Some people probably do think it's worth it to have just like an extra day. And also, in the moment, you're going to change your mind. Like, even if it's painful. Maybe you want another day with your loved ones. Um, I think a lot of this W.S. Merwin poem, um, it's so short that I should be able to recite it, but it's like, I think it was right after his uh, last partner had passed, and I wanna say the title is Wish, and it's just, please, just one more kiss in the kitchen or something like that. I'm sorry if I'm watching it. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Just, yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard because we want a full life, but we, at the end, we also just want like a little bit more. So I'm curious maybe about that experience of that's something that I took out of the poem, but you weren't thinking about it. And art in general, when it goes out in the world, it's up to everyone else to relate to. It's, you know, everyone's bringing their personal history and their biography to, the, to your biography of your art that you put out. And I don't know if you have much experience of hearing from readers or, but like, it's like you birthed this bird and it's flying off and everyone else is gonna see it react in that same way. And how do you feel about that? Mm, I think that's okay. I think whatever readers get out of it, if they get anything out of it, I am happy. If it touches them in a way that I did not intend, I am happy. Um, I, I mean, I do, I do think that's why I like to try to emphasize that poetry is not nonfiction. Like, even though, I mean, obviously so much of this book is largely autobiographical, but it's not entirely. Um, and then as people read it, yeah, they're probably gonna read something out of it that was not something that happened to me. And that's okay if it is helpful. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the alchemy of it, right? It's like you're putting it out in the world and mixes with other people's brains and creates something all its own in every brain. Yeah. So it's like this living organism that's amoebic and changing. You talk about, like, you've been thinking about what it means to be alive, and through some of these poems, you talk about running. And I'm wondering mm. if running is something that makes you feel alive and or helps you write. Mm. Or if it's just pain. <laughs> um, maybe a little of both. I, so in grad school, I, I guess I became a runner. I was not terribly athletic before that at all. Um, but I got really into a lot of things, including running. 
Um, I think part of it, I'll be honest, it was a lot of just distraction. Like, moving my body helped distract me from like the overwhelming pain I felt. Uh, because then I could focus on the physical pain. And that was kind of nice. Um, I don't run as much anymore. I like hurt my knee and like, I don't know. I never really got to a point where I liked it. I like reached the end of a half marathon and I was like, I still hate this. Why am I still doing this? <laughs> so I'm sorry to runners out there. <laughs> um, I'm glad you enjoy it. Uh, but I still uh, need to move a lot. Like, I like walking a lot, hiking a lot. I do yoga every day, all of these things. And I think it, it is helpful for, mm, I think just for me to stay sane, which therefore is indirectly helpful to my writing process. It keeps me from ruminating in bad ways and helps me focus my attention in healthier ways. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Um, could you read the plural of us? The plural of us. The end of an us is a death without dying. Such a waste, it seems, to discard the dreams I dared beside you. Turn familiar hearts stone, each to our own separate deaths. Waking, I remember your crooked laugh, sitting in your car, watching the ocean crash, shape itself against stone, shape the stone. Think of starfish and its regenerating limbs. Think of the plural limbs of an octopus, like the octopus that slithered from its tank to freedom. The plural octopuses, octopodes, octopi, with all their limbs reaching. Think how the Latin plural of us is I. Can you talk a little bit about that? Hmm, yeah. Um, and thanks for asking me to read this one. It's, again, not one I read that often. I... I wrote this after like the end of a relationship. Um, I think that was one of, I don't know, maybe one of the first times that I realized I could like grieve something other than my mother. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about that, and I have since realized that I turn a lot to nature, um, like even beyond the cellular. Uh, I get a lot of metaphors, a lot of inspiration from just thinking about like animal behavior and the movement of the waves since I live kind of near the ocean. Um, and so I was just thinking about separation and what it means to be on, on my own, like before, during, after the end of something, and kind of realizing in the end, like 
I am what I have. Yeah, and I love how the octopus, the Latin plural of us is I, which I think in the note in the end, you said that's actually not correct. <laughs> well, okay, so that part is correct. It's just that octopus is not Latin, it's Greek, and so... Uh, I had to verify this after. So the correct plural is either octopodes or octopuses. Octopi is not correct, even though a lot of people say that. Yeah, so <laughs> new grammar lesson. <laughs> yes, but I wasn't going to scrap this poem for it. <laughs> um, you, you do write about the loss of love. You also write about beautiful love that you found. And you also have, I don't want to overlook the humor. You have a poem called The Next great American love story. And you, you say, if love is my religion, Craigslist misconnections are my Bible. And so you have these people who are like, um, Sam, 4.10 PM, we were, we were drunk, you left a bruise. Sorry I avoided you for a month. I think you're cute, too little, too late. So it's people searching out these random encounters. And at the end, you write, sometimes you read about love so beautiful, so hopeless, your chest bruises from the heroic collision. This is not it. So I love that when you're talking about these connections who are trying so hard on the internet to find each other because they believe that in that moment that they saw each other drunk at a bar or um, a smoking hunk of cheese at the beach is their person. So um, a lot of times people don't go to poetry for humor. Um, so just wanted to ask you about that. Hmm. I mean, I love when poetry is able to incorporate humor. I don't actually think I'm the best at that. I aspire to be better. Um, I, Because I really love to end readings or whatever on like a lighter note instead of being like relentlessly bleak. I feel like I am so often just relentlessly bleak. So I, I appreciate humor elsewhere and therefore I try to incorporate it myself when I can. Um, yeah, that was, I will say about that poem, I was once at a Litquake reading, and Litquake is this big poetry festival in San Francisco in October, um, and I closed out my part with that poem, and this like scowling teenage kid who had been sitting in the corner, clearly dragged by his parent to this reading, that was the point when he like looked up and stopped scowling, and I was so happy. <laughs> Awesome. It's kind of like maybe for some people, like where the sidewalk ends, how that brought children to poetry because it was fun and whimsical and it wasn't like iambic pentameter. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> the way we teach poetry in schools is so often a disservice to poetry. Yeah, I mean, people loathe it. They hate it. They're scared by it. They don't understand it. And yet it can be so accessible and beautiful and concentrated about almost the closest of what it means to be alive in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, two more questions, and I'm going to get to the end, and then we can open up. Um, you talked about nature, and I don't know if you can see this, but this, this cover is beautiful. It's this incredible sunset um, over, it's not the mountains, it's like, but it has some trees. And um, how did you choose this cover? So I actually, I took this photo in Mammoth Lakes, California, um, another mountain town like Crested Butte, but secretly, maybe not secretly since I'm saying this here, I kind of like Crested Butte more. 
maybe cut this. <laughs> Never. Um, yeah, so I, I took the photo, uh, and it seemed kind of like a, a good fit, maybe, so I sent it to my press as like an option if they didn't have other, like, I don't know, anything better. Um, and they ended up going with it, and uh, my the cover designer who kind of played around with the colors a little bit and did the cool stuff with the text um, is one of my oldest friends, my friend from middle school, Hilary Steinberg. Um, yeah, because she is now a graphic designer. She works for Vegas PBS. And I was like, please help me <laughs> like make this something. <laughs> like beyond just the photo and yeah I think she did a great job with that and she was like the only one of my friends who had met my mother and we had had mm, maybe similarly complicated like relationships with our families growing up and so yeah we just we had a lot in common as kids and have obviously continued to stay in touch and so she when she read through this she was thinking about like memory and nostalgia to some extent and that was um, part of the influence for how she designed this. I did a whole interview with her, actually, for Palette Poetry, where she talked more about this. Oh, it's, re it's really interesting. That's interesting because you, you are so interpersonal and, you know, cellular, like we didn't talk about your biology poems, to have the cover be so much bigger, like this bigger view of the world and coming back to nature, this place you find solace. And that's how you end this collection. Your last poem is called Contingencies and it's in three sections. And in your last section you say, and I'm curious because you're here for this residency, I want to move to the mountains and breathe, which is to say I want to be anywhere but here. I would build myself a nest atop the tallest tree, say hello to the grizzlies. <laughs> it's making me cry. Um, you have to read it. Okay. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> it's like the dominoes of crying. I want to move to the mountains and breathe, which is to say I want to be anywhere but here. I would build myself a nest atop the tallest tree, say hello to the grizzlies and lost small birds. I would trace the star's slow fire path into my palm like a poem. Let this be enough. I would be the mountain and the stars, be that immovable and that transient. Can you talk about that in terms of being here? <laughs> How could I have known when I wrote this that <laughs> I would be here? Um, yeah, I, I think I wrote this poem during one of the many years of California wildfires. <laughs> And I was thinking a lot about endings, the endings of things, the endings of lives, the endings of like my life or species or whatever, and trying to imagine an alternative or just something that could be better 
And yeah, I think that's where these lost species come into it. And I, th I think poetry, or just like, I don't know, stories, literature in general, like that is part of the power is just being able to imagine something better. And I think we need to, because how do we, like how do we have hope? How do we like fight for something if we don't believe in it anymore? And so I, I think of myself as being deeply cynical, but I really don't want to be. And I want to, mm, I want to be someone who does imagine something better and I want all of us to do that. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I had such a hard time with this because there were so many. Um, but I guess on this note... One of the poems I um, love is by Victoria Chang, um, and it's the first poem in her collection, Barbie Chang. Once Barbie Chang worked. Once Barbie Chang worked on a street named Wall. Once she sprinkled her yard with timed water. Once she wore lanyards in large rooms, all the chairs pointed in the direction of one speaker and a podium. Once she stood up at the end to leave, but everyone else stood up and began putting their hands together. And that always started her wanting something better. So why did you choose that? This poem is one that lives rent-free in my mind, as Gen Z would say, aging myself right now. I really loved this and gravitated towards it um, because when I read this, I was thinking, I don't know, I was almost like, like desperately trying to figure out like how to make a life for myself that felt authentic and true. And, and that is something that's sort of expressed by this poem. Um, and I think there are many times in life, many reasons that we can feel despair and not living our authentic lives can be one of them. And so I appreciated that about this poem and also just sort of knowing more about like Victoria's path, how she used to be in financy things, um, but is now um, making her life primarily in poetry and being like, true to what she loves doing. I think all of those things brought me some hope um, in a time where I was like kind of scrambling for a door and I couldn't see one. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you love. Sure, yes. I'll. I'll read one of the poems in here. Um, I have been working on a lot of essays and those tend to be much harder for me. They're also much longer to read. So one of the poems in here is titled Postcards from the Living. And that poem took me 10 years to finish. I wrote a draft um, and 
it didn't feel right, but I didn't know what to do with it, and I set it down for a few years and went back to it, set it down for a few years again and went back to it. Sometimes that's how writing works. So this is Postcards from the Living. It's on page 36. I don't know why I'm telling anyone else that. <laughs> Postcards from the Living. I light incense on the stovetop, trail cinders through an empty house. I've decided to believe in the power of ashes. Here I am, buying fruit, mending torn shirts, brushing teeth in cramped bathrooms, living someplace new. Wish you were here. I sprinkle sandalwood dust on the ribbon from my first 5K, the token from my first solo trip. Milestones so small and unremarkable, only you could understand and be proud. Remember world history class, how I translated lectures to you each night, partly to practice, partly to keep you with me. Every day, there's so much new I want to show you, like the spongy tang of injera, pork belly banh mi melting like butter on the tongue. All these places I have traveled without you, so I can forget how without you I am. Remember when I was 10 and hateful, trying too hard to be cool? How in a rare moment you said, all you wanted was for me to love my life, my only life, this life you started. Here, look how the clouds blush so fiercely, the stark blue winter, so cold and bright. Mm. So we're, we only have a few minutes left, but do you want to share anything more about why that was hard? I think I just needed to live my life more before I got to the final form. And mm. sometimes that's just how it goes. Okay. Where do you write? I write a lot in coffee shops. Really, I write anywhere I can. I always have a notebook with me. Um, in my apartment, I have like a little nook that is actually supposed to be a mudroom. But I like being in like small spaces. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Hmm. Um, I would say that I, I like moving around a lot, um, go on long walks. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not doing something that's still like sort of writing, but yeah, just to get out of my head a little. I move a lot, I paint and sketch and I don't know, do lots of like visual art things too. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? About half the time, it's my partner. He's not a writer, but he's really good at helping me figure out like what is not working. Um, and then the other half of the time, I sort of rotate around various writing groups and friends so as not to overburden any one person. How have you dealt with rejection? Mm, I think, I mean, Obviously, rejection is always hard, um, especially if it's something that you really want. It still hurts. I think you have to, I think Ada Lamone said this, I think you have to let yourself feel it. I'm bad at that, actually, so I'm trying to listen to her. Um, and, but I also think 
like it is so much a part of the writing life and definitely was a part of research and a part of just life in general. Um, and you have to realize it's not, it's not that personal. And what is your favorite word? I don't know that I have a favorite word necessarily, but a word that I've realized I use a lot more than I think is normal is flesh. Like if you go through this book, I've used it a few times, like, and probably a few more than is normal. Um, <laughs> maybe that is the scientist in me, but I also think it's like good to stay grounded and I don't know, remember, we are all sacks of flesh. We're all like unified in our decay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing this beautiful collection. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. This interview with Jenny Chi, author of the poetry collection Focal Point, was recorded live in Crested Butte, Colorado, at the annual Mountain Words Festival. You can learn more about it at mtnwords.org. If you like my interview with Jenny Chi, check out my interview with poet Tina Chang also recorded in front of a live audience in Aspen, Colorado. We talked about raising a mixed-race child, finding words for furious energy, and how form can help express emotions. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rachel Eliza Griffiths, Roger Reeves, and David Vandenberg. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.